Welcome to episode 11 of Unraveling Pink, a podcast exploring gender-based assumptions or pink bandana moments at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. This was a really fun episode to record. I interviewed Emerald Archer, who has done some fascinating gender research in the U.S. military. We did the interview at Podcast Movement, which is a conference that happens every year for podcasters. There were about 1,200 of us there. And I wanted to say a couple thank yous to Shure and TalkShoe, who set up the recording stations of the conference that allowed us to record this there. We were in a hallway with the buzz and energy of the conference around us. You'll occasionally hear some background noise when groups of people are passing by us, but the sound came out quite good considering the noisy environment. If you're a podcaster, definitely check out Podcast Movement 2018, which will take place in Philadelphia. It's a great way to meet other podcasters and to learn tips to improve your craft. A special thank you in this episode to Joanna Bloor, who you might recall is one of our prior guests. She introduced me to our guest in this episode, Emerald. And thank you also to Steve Stewart for setting up the recording of the conference. It was a lot of fun and great energy to be around everybody. And now here is my interview with Emerald. We have a special guest today who drove all the way from L.A. to interview in person, Emerald Archer, who is the director for the Center for the Advancement of Women at Mount St. Mary's University. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. It's great to talk with you. One thing that I think is fascinating about what you are doing is you are looking at a lot of different aspects of women and you particularly focus on research on women in the military. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that research? Sure. So I just have a book out in August this month entitled Women, Warfare, and Representation. And it's a book that really provides an interdisciplinary history on women's experience in conflict since the turn of the century. I call it interdisciplinary because I look at different militaries and how they kind of square with our experience here in the United States. Um, I use in-depth interviewing, experimental analysis, content analysis. So it really covers a lot of disciplines to think about what women's experiences look like now and what it will look like in the future. That's great. So I saw that on your, maybe your LinkedIn profile, you talk about finding solutions and eradicating persistent gender inequities. And you're looking to solve these problems in our lifetime. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So my work at the center is to do what you just said, right? To work with partners to eradicate these persistent gender inequities in our lifetime. That's a huge job. We cannot do it alone. But we do a lot of research and public programming that thinks about how we can change the space for women so they're more involved and they have a bigger voice. At the Center for the Advancement of Women, we publish a report called the Report on the Status of Women and Girls in California annually that thinks about the challenges women face and the challenges we've overcome in a diverse array of categories like health, political participation, wage and wealth inequities. These are just a couple to name a few. But that report really informs the work of legislators and advocates like all of your listeners to advance women and girls. So how are we doing so far? We are doing okay, we can do better, right? <laughs> we have another program called Ready to Run, where oh, we, um, it's a nonpartisan political training campaign program. So women are activated in ways they want to be in public spaces, whether that's appointed office or, or getting them ready to run for elective office. So we okay. need more women. 
Yes, definitely. Have you seen an increase since the 2016 election? Absolutely. There are more women across the country participating in these kinds of programs. So. Do you hear from them about what, why they're getting involved now? Yeah, I think that uh, many of them have said, you know, they're, of course, the last election was jarring for many women. And they recognize that there needs to be that voice in in their local politics as well as in state politics. So they're considering, you know, how they can change even the dynamic of, of boards or commissions, right? Very few voices that are women's on commissions are there. So we're just increasing those so they can make a difference in their communities. Do you find that, that the women who are joining that program or are interested in that program, are they starting at the local level or do you see them wanting to plug in all the way up to the federal congressional level? Most are talking about the local level, um, how they can make changes in their own communities so that their daughters and sons have more opportunity later down the line. Do you think that women think too small? Yes and no. I think that some are very pragmatic, like many women in the last Ready to Run a program we held in April have small families or have young families. Mm -hmm. So they're juggling careers, they're juggling children and family life balance, and, and they're thinking about how to insert themselves into this whole new world, which presents a whole new host of problems or yeah. challenges for them to solve while right. they're simultaneously juggling everything else. So it's a way for them to make a difference and still continue with all the challenges that they have in their life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad you guys are doing that work. I read a little bit of your book. I didn't read it cover to cover, but I did read a few pieces in it. It is fascinating. Uh, there are a couple things that I wanted to talk with you about. One of the persistent gender inequities that you researched was around something you called stereotype threats. Can you say what a stereotype threat is? Sure. So stereotype threat is a social phenomenon that often we find ourselves in where there may be a stereotype, a negative stereotype about your social group that exists that could be applied to you for a given task. Now, if that negative stereotype is applied to you, you may feel so much anxiety in the need to disconfirm that negative stereotype that that anxiety produces a lower performance. So, for example, outcome. like if I if I'm a 13 year old girl and I'm told girls are bad at math, yes, and then they say go in and take your math test, yep. that I'm going to be so stressed out about everyone thinking I'm going to be bad at math, and you that it will actually affect my performance. Absolutely. And I'll do worse. Yes. Awesome. And <laughs> often, often, if your self-worth is mm. wrapped up in being a great mathematician, you have more at stake to lose if you don't disprove that stereotype wrong. Yeah. So then right. did you find that when you have more to lose, you actually do worse when you're... Absolutely. When that stereotype's in your head. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And you don't even have to believe the stereotype. It just has to exist mm -hmm. for you to perhaps fall prey to it. Yeah. I think that there's probably a lot of that that happens um, for women in leadership roles. Oh, yes. Like just like being constantly told that you're not ready or you're right. not a leader. And, and I know a lot of women I talk to in the executive ranks feel like I not only have to do my job really well, but I have to prove that I deserve to be here, Absolutely. which is more work and more effort. Yep. Yeah. So that would be a stereotype. Threat. Yes. That's a perfect example. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the stereotype threat that y the, the research that you did in the military. I think it's 
fascinating, the whole concept of women in the military and what we've seen over the years of the acceptance or not of women in military, and especially when we get into the combat, combat yeah, area. Right. And you did some research with the Marines mm -hmm. around... I would say sharpshooting. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do there? Sure. So my so I put together an experiment on a rifle range at Camp Pendleton down in Southern California to look at whether the negative stereotype of women can't shoot or you shoot like a girl actually created underperformance in female Marines. And so would, would the girl be Annie Oakley? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that might have a different impact. Exactly. Right. Or she might fall prey to yeah. it even more because she was a good shooter, right? I essentially primed groups of Marines with this negative stereotype about women shooting. Both men and women? Both men and women. So you said women are not good shooters. Uh, yes. And I said, you know, you. and I should say too, before I go any further, that uh, that the examination was a marksmanship qualification. So Marines take a annual marksmanship qualification just to make sure that they're um, their the proficiency on the rifle is is always fresh. Is that an important part of their job? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So part of the mil or the Marine Corps ethos is that every Marine is a rifleman. So the idea that a Marine might feel very strongly about their ability to shoot mm -hmm. holds for stereotype threat. Okay. So I thought, okay, we'll use this test to see if there are any difference after I prime the groups with either no stereotype about ability to shoot or a negative stereotype about women's ability. So what I found is that we were able to decrease the performance, lower the scores of women who were the best shooters in the Marine Corps. Wow. Um, and it was fascinating too because we also affected men, which we didn't expect to affect at all. What was the impact on men? So the best shooters who are men also decrease in terms of performance. But we didn't say any stereotype about their performance. So what, you know, what I was thinking, and I haven't explored this further since that particular experiment, but I was calling it precarious manhood, right? That the stereotype about women was actually a challenge to men. Like, you need to shoot better oh, than the women. Yeah. If you can't overperform, what is that going to say about your ability uh -huh. as a Marine? So it was, it was fascinating. So if we were to think about how that, plays out in non-military mm -hmm. workplaces. Are there messages that women are receiving that impact their ability to do their job or make their jobs harder? Is, is that something that you're seeing or is that outside the scope of what you're looking at? No, I think the research that I did with the Marine Corps absolutely applies to women outside of the military context. So whether you're told you're bossy or you're hard to work with or aggressive. you're aggressive, right? These things really impact how people perceive you and how you can get your job done, whether you're in tech, right? Whether you're um, a professor in a department with all men, it will impact what you can do and what you want to do in those spaces. So, for example, if, if I'm told that I'm aggressive, which was maybe great when I was a litigator in court, but in a leadership position, it's viewed maybe more negatively right. than knowing that that's a negative trait and that I've received that comment in the past, right. then I would probably self-monitor myself constantly Absolutely. to make sure I'm not going to be perceived as aggressive. Yeah. And I can give you an example from the Marine Corps that translates, I think, into the civilian world very well is you had, you had two Marines, one male, one female, who were officers. And they were mentoring their, um, 
young enlisted Marines. And the man, the male officer, was celebrated for his mentorship. But the woman was reprimanded because she was socializing too much. Wow, she wasn't actually mentoring. Uh-huh. Right. So this is a very gendered stereotype that women talk. They're not they're mm-hmm. they're more interested in the social aspects rather than the technical aspects of their work. But she was doing very important work in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And because of that reprimand, then she surveilled herself yeah. and actually stopped mentoring. Wow. Which did a terrible disservice to any Marines under her. Yeah. After that. Well, that's interesting because the, the the stereotypes that have those negative impacts are sometimes like we're seeing this shift, for example, on the leadership quality standpoint where feminine leadership qualities are now being recognized as more important yeah. in the workplace and really valuable. And right. so that that example that you gave is a classic example of mentorship and passing on information and, and all of that is positive. And if yep. you're sending a message that you're not doing it right, yeah. when actually you're probably doing it better if you are a person who's more collaborative and nurturing right. and, and trying to help in the mentoring situation, that's a positive thing. Absolutely. So how do we switch a stereotype right. to, especially if it's something that's actually a positive in this mentoring situation, yeah. it's probably a positive. Is there a way to switch the mindset of men and women in, in the workplace or in the military about educating this is actually a good thing or we're using the language wrong, let's let's try to, to correct for that so right. that it's more of a positive instead of a negative. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's all about framing, right? And I think that we have to be really cognizant of the words we use to describe behaviors. So, you know, in the in the Marine Corps or in the tech world, if you're if a woman's assertive, she's called a bitch, mm-hmm. right? And that is unproductive. Like what what she is is um, confident. What she is is you know understands her job and her employees and her team and the needs of of the group. So I think we just need to reframe how we describe behaviors and then we won't have these stereotypes to contend with every day. But that's a hard, I mean, those kinds of cultural behavioral changes are hard to do. Yeah, it's so invasive and people don't even realize they're saying it. I hear comments all the time and I was like, oh, that's a trigger word. That's aggressive for women. But, and I know it because I I do so much research and talking in this space, but the, the average person who's just at work trying to get the job done isn't thinking, okay, what word am I using? What's right? right? And they don't want to, for the most part, have to think about every word. Right. Like there's this yeah. culture of political correctness now that that everyone feels so worried about every word that they're saying that I think it makes even more of a challenge to changing oh, yeah. the, the the language we're using. And I think it's important to state that women use these words about other women too, yeah. right? That we all have to contend with implicit bias and these I mean, lazy words. I mean, I don't want to admit this, but I've described a woman's behavior as catty. That's not helping anyone, right? right? That's just further magnifying these these images and these descriptors. Yeah, it's hard. I, I went on this crusade, I'll call it, of trying to call out whenever there's a cat fight comment. Yeah. And and it happens a lot. And I think that there's also within the community of women, there is a feeling like there's competition among a lot of women. Sure. And it's unclear to me 
if it's at certain levels or in certain situations, but there is something lingering that we, we need to correct, I would say, yeah. as a gender. And totally. we all collectively just said, let's stop being yeah. catty and let's right. stop calling people out as catty and right. just have conversations, you know, would that move it forward faster? I think it would. Yeah, me too. Kind of along the same lines since we talked about women being called a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Another part of your book talked about typecasting of women and, yeah. and it came up in a couple of different ways. There was how women are perceived categorically in the military and then also how men respond to that from feeling they need to protect women. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how that played out in the research that you did. Sure. So I'll say for the book, I interviewed Marines and airmen. So I focused on the most conservative, I'll say, service branch, which is the Marine Corps with 6% women's representation. And then the most liberal, I'll say, uh, service branch is the Air Force with 20% women. So the finding of typecasting really came into play with the Marines and not so much things. So in the Marine Corps, women were told that they have to adopt one persona in order to survive the Corps. And so this, this is, is when they camp. arrive. This is when they arrive in boot camp. So I should say, too, that the Marine Corps is the only service branch that still segregates the boot camp experience. Oh, so, so you've women got women are, together. And then, exactly. Okay. So this is a perfect kind of environment for male boot camp instructors to tell men stay away from women, their trouble. And wow. in the domain of women, what they were being told informally is that you have three typecast categories for possibilities. You're going to be a bitch, a dyke, or a whore. So the one that survives is the bitch. So that's the one that you need to choose. Right. But what's interesting here is that all of these personas are negative, right? There's no positive spin on a female Marine. So when they go into the fleet and start working together, they're already kind of on the defensive. Why do you think that they're all negative? Why, why is there no positive path for women in the military? Is it they're, they're not welcome there or something else going on? It's a, it's a long history of women trying to assert themselves more fully into uh, the Marine Corps in this case. So, you know, women who don't want administrative roles, who want maybe the grittier job like the mechanic or the pilot or heaven forbid, you know, the combat Marine, that's really, I think, threatening to the image, the prototypical image of what the Marine is, right? And it's a hard charging, brute strength, get it done Marine. And I think there's just constant pushback against women. Women have done very well. Combat units are open to women now and they're slowly trickling in. But the pushback of this is our turf, not yours, mm -hmm. that you can't hang with us, right? That you can't help us be a more ready force. I think they just, they say you're going to be one of these ancillary players yeah. and it's not helpful to, to um, our mission. So how do women navigate that in like in the Marines where it seems like it's tougher? I think women acknowledge that they're going to be stereotyped. And I spoke to many female Marines who said, you know, I'm one of the brothers. I don't feel at, at any point during my career that I have been looked down upon, that I've been unfairly treated, that I wasn't advanced hmm. in a fast enough fashion. But I've met plenty of women who say it is a daily struggle, that every every task I do is a prove it. Prove yeah. it to you task that I should be here, that I can 
maintain in this space. It's got to be so much stress. I mean, yeah. you, you see that just generally in normal office work Absolutely. places where women feel like they have to prove that they deserve to be there. They right. have to prove they're good enough. And it's this added layer of effort and stress over and above just doing your job. I've talked with women who feel like it's almost two jobs that they have. Yeah. Oh, the, absolutely. The, the real job and that they get paid for and then the job to prove that they right. should have that job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the men, just to go back to your original point uh -huh. about the protecting, I've heard many male Marines say, I've got a double duty. I have to protect the guy beside me who's doing the hard work of war and I have to protect the sister next to me because she can't hang. Mm, so yeah. she like I'm more likely to compromise the the soldier who's male because I want to save this girl's life next to me. Wow. That's right? pretty Which, amazing with the 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 type of women who would actually go into the Marines. Um yeah. could could certainly beat me up in an alley. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure they wouldn't really need all that much protecting. Right. But it it sounds like it's just a really ingrained yes. perception yes. that they have to protect. And them. I should you know, and this this has a deep history in all of the service branches, but the Marine Corps, you know, in the 50s, there were headshots taken of women who were entering the Corps, and they were glamour shots, right? There was marine red lipstick that was government issued, right? So wow. there's a lot of yeah. gendered layers of women and, and how they've had to navigate these very clear markers that you're not a soldier. You said that in boot camp, the, the men would be told stay away from women, they're trouble. Right. And right now in in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of discussion around the VC space and some harassment charges that have come out. And one of the responses that I've heard women entrepreneurs who have had meetings with VCs canceled since this happened, yeah. um, and the perception is that the male VCs do not even want to meet with them because sure. they're afraid they're going to be accused of harassment. Right. And so that strikes me as a similar issue to what you saw in the Marines. Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, it's the optics of it all, right? So if the stereotypes that these VCs are holding are that women are, are bitchy, that they're bossy, that they're difficult to work with, right? They will, and oftentimes unconsciously, right, decide that this is not an avenue I want to go down because it's more trouble than it's worth possibly. Right. Especially if they might sue them or affect their reputation with yep. a social media charge. Absolutely. This guy hit on me during right. a, a investor pitch. Right, right. Yeah. So, and, I mean, in the military side of the house, for the Marines, too, in my interviewing, they said going all the way up to the top, generals have decided they're not even going to think or consider female aides. They're going to only choose male aides because that won't have any repercussions to their career in terms of how they're working with those male aides or, you know, their postures and those relationships. But with women, you know, and this goes back to Petraeus and his mm -hmm, yeah. affair, they've called it the Petraeus effect, that this they want to distance themselves so fully from any of these accusations that they won't allow women in those positions. And that does not allow for career growth. For right women in that context. Yeah, and now we have the Pence effect. Yeah. Uh, don't even. In, in, oh, right. I mean, reflecting on my own career, I got so much advice from men over drinks or dinner, and sure. And occasionally, I would get the impression that people didn't, that men did not want to have dinner with me yeah. because it would be perceived as as improper. Yeah. Right. 
And those are such critical, informal discussions of things like how do I progress in my career and what are the unwritten rules of the company Right. Um, that to cut that off for women basically cuts, cuts off the career. career development. Yeah. 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 It's a challenge yeah. in both contexts. Before we close with a challenge, um, I do want to talk about one issue that I'm hearing a lot with people that I talk with, which is the bro culture. And it plays out in a lot of different ways. And maybe some of the things that you've already talked about are really the bro culture as you're seeing it in the military. Like I have to, you know, stay away from women or, or whatever. Are, is there something that you're seeing either in the research that you did with the military or generally in the studies that you're doing about what the bro culture is and how it's impacting women's advancement in the workplace. There is an obvious dimension of the bro culture in the military, particularly in combat-oriented jobs. Many of the female fighter pilots that I spoke to would often say that in order to survive in the fighter pilot community, you have to outbro the bros. So you have to be even more masculine than you might have been in order just to hang. So women in these communities have to assimilate. There's no accommodation whatsoever for different leadership styles or different activities or behaviors. And that's a reality that women are facing there. And I think it's a real detriment to the military if you don't have a diversity of experience and orientation and thought and yeah, just behavior. And so outbrowing the bros is most demonstrated, I think, in these very highly masculine jobs, mm-hmm. such as combat pilots or on the ground, boots on the ground. Kind of right. That's interesting because the concept of that's such a strong culture that's not likely to change. Right. There is research about uh, more feminine leadership styles. Um, Dana Middleton spoke on this podcast a few episodes ago about how as we as we move forward, there's a lot of value from more feminine leadership styles. Absolutely. And I would assume that would also translate to the military. Yeah. Um, but unless we're able to bring more of those styles in in right. ways that are influential, it seems like it would be really hard to change the bro culture. Right, yeah. And in order to bring those styles in, you need more women in higher ranking positions to say that it's okay. Yeah, so we've got a chicken and egg problem. Yeah. This has been fascinating. I would love to close with a challenge for our listeners if you have one. Sure. So the challenge, and I'll, I'll kind of step aside from the military work But the challenge that I would most like to see or hear listeners do is stop telling your future employer what you made in your last position or your current position. And for employers, stop asking for this data, right? Because we know through the gender wage gap that women are already underpaid for the work that they're doing. Asking this question or providing this answer continues just that cycle of underpayment and that gap's never going to shrink if we keep doing that. So... It's a retention, you know, tool for companies to keep their amazing employees and and allow them to stretch for leadership positions later. So just, it's hard, but if you can, push back and ask, like, why do you need this information? What's the job worth? Mm -hmm. And do you think that for women getting this advice, coming into an interview situation, that they should be prepared with, like, this is what 
Like they should know this yeah. is what this is worth. This is the range Absolutely. and this is what we should be talking yes. about. Yes. Do the research, okay. like figure out what the median salary is for your particular job. Look at the industry in your state to see what women are, look at what men are being paid, right? Yeah. And think about given your experience, your education, your background, the perspective you bring, like what is the job, the actual work? worth and how much are you bringing to the table yeah, that's great because i think i saw a study where there's the difference is like five hundred thousand dollars over the course of your career yeah if you know yeah. it's crazy awesome well thank you so thank much you. this has been a great conversation yeah. and before we close i want to say a couple thank yous thanks to sure for providing the microphones for our live podcast recording at podcast movement 2017 and thanks to talk shoe for sponsoring this live recording of our podcast unraveling pink TalkShoe is a unique website for people to participate in live, interactive podcasts called Community Calls. So thank you. It's been fantastic. You heard a lot of background noise because we are amidst the energy of podcast movement. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was really interesting to talk with Emerald and hear about her experience, as well as how the military experience translates into civilian life. There are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of things we can learn from each other, and certainly we have a lot more work to do. In addition to the challenge that you heard Emerald issue, I have an additional challenge this episode, which is to pay attention to your word choice and framing. As Emerald discussed, these are subtle things, but they can have a huge impact on the women around you at work. Just becoming aware of the language you're using is the first step and really requires nothing more than paying attention to what you're saying, which you're probably already doing. I will join you in this challenge. I will also put in the show notes a link to some resources that help you identify some of the words that might be trigger words. We talked about some in the episode, but there's some more and just some handy resources that you could have at the ready. Thanks for listening. If you have a pink bandana moment you're willing to share, or if there's a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode, please send me a note at www.unravelingpink.com contact and let me know. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to review it or rate it on iTunes or SoundCloud. Together, we can unravel the pink bandana. <laughs>